Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. Glad to have each of you here. There are some things in life that you can't avoid, and one of them is getting older. And there are things about getting older that you recognize are true, whether you like them or not. One of them is that you seem to pay for more things as you get older. Now, that might be because there is a wedding coming up in the Oder family, and what consoles me when I think about paying and weddings is that there are several couples in our congregation who have paid for not one but two weddings in the last a few months, and uh, one couple in particular that has two daughters getting married within one year. The fact of the matter is, as you get older, wedding or not, you begin paying for more things. That can be true for a group that you're a part of, a team that you belong to, employees that you have, kids that are yours, or even grandchildren. It might be snacks or desserts. It might be outings or treats. It might be meals or gifts. I'm always fascinated by what happens when you pay. I'm fascinated by the response of people, not just to the gift, but to the giver. I'm fascinated by who actually comes up later and says, hey, you paid for that. Thank you. There's a story told in Luke's gospel, chapter 17 of Luke, where Jesus is coming through a particular village and there were 10 people there who had leprosy, a skin disease. And when Jesus was passing through, they called out to him for his help. And through his response and his direction on what they should do, all 10 of them were healed. Do you remember how many came back? One. Jesus said to that man, he said, where are the others? The man didn't have an answer for them, for him. He just expressed his gratitude. Because where there's a gift, there's a giver. Where there's a healing, there's a healer. And those who are best see beyond what is here to the one who made it possible. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're in our second week there of our series called Can I Get a Witness? And if you have opportunity, it'd be great to have a, a hard copy of the scriptures because we're going to look at a larger section of scripture And it's important to see the context. If you don't have that but would like it, just raise your hand. One of our hosts or hostesses will give you a copy of the scriptures. Acts chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Second sermon in our series. Can I get a witness? And, And the question comes from what might be seen as the theme verse of Acts found in chapter 1 for the entire book. Quoting Jesus 40 days after his resurrection, when he addresses his disciples, we read Jesus saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. It's not primarily something that they do, it's who they are. Being precedes doing. But the question itself, can I get a witness, is actually a personal challenge from Jesus to professing followers of him. Jesus is saying, will you speak of who I am? Or in more Christian terms, he's asking, will you speak the good news of what I've done for sinners on the cross and what I've made possible through my powerful resurrection from the dead? Because to witness to Jesus is to speak of Jesus. A bit later, we're going to drill down on a summary of the gospel. But last week, if you remember, 
we looked at a grid or a framework that helps us understand what effective, fruitful gospel witness is. Four realities that either detract from or enhance our witness to Jesus. And if all four of those are true in our witness, from a human perspective, we're going to be all the more effective. When they're not true, we end up with less fruitful witness. We need to remind ourselves that in the end, it's God who brings people to saving faith, that it's God who causes the scales to fall from people's eyes so that spiritually speaking, they see who Jesus is and respond to him. But humanly speaking, there are factors, there are realities that aid in the effectiveness of our witness. Here are four of them. All four C's, clarity on the gospel, number one. Clarity on the gospel, a confidence that we can understandably summarize the good news from God. To be clear, clarity on the gospel. Number two, contact with unbelievers. Genuine relational contact, connections, with people who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. God gives us all kinds of chance encounters, which are not chance in the end. They're arranged divinely by God but the ongoing relationships that we have with people who don't know Jesus. Number three, compassion. Compassion for human needs, which speaks to eyes to see, a heart that's responsive to the needs that we see in people around us. Clarity, contact, compassion. Finally, courage. Courage to speak the good news. Courage is a resolve to seize the opportunities to speak the good news of Jesus. I I want you to keep these four sees these four phrases or words in mind as we study this passage today. Clarity, contact, compassion, and courage. And I want you to see how several of these are particularly highlighted in the passage before us. Last week we were in Acts chapter 1 and 2. After Jesus uh, spoke to his disciples, he ascended back to heaven. There were some days in which they selected a replacement disciple or apostle for Judas. And then the event of Pentecost takes place, Acts chapter two, where the spirit of Jesus descends and gives unexpected power for witness, as Jesus said. And the response was pretty good. The Bible tells us 3,000 people were added to the number of Jesus followers that day. They responded to the good news about Jesus. Today, we find ourselves in Acts 3. Multiple points in your outline there, either in your worship program or online, gracepolaris.org slash program. You can follow along. First, the healing event. First 10 chapters of Acts 3. Dr. Luke is the author, not just of the gospel in his name, but also of the story of the early church in Acts. And he begins with some context for this historically true event taking place in the city of Jerusalem shortly after Pentecost. Verse 1, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now a lot of the details here are lost on us, but this was a real place. This is probably what we call today, what's been called for centuries, the Temple Mount. I was just there three weeks ago. The temple itself was destroyed in 70 AD, just a few decades after Jesus walked the earth. So none of us have seen that. But it was an important place, particularly in the time of Christ, 
for gathering and for prayer. Religious people went there to the temple mount, to the temple on top of it. And then and now, Jewish and otherwise, people tend to place a high value when they go to holy sites on almsgiving, on generosity to those in need. Your frame of mind might be a little different when you find people asking for help or money or food when you pull up to a stop light or stop sign at Polaris or elsewhere around Columbus. But typically when we go to what we think of as a holy site, our posture for generosity is heightened. Going to the temple back in that day predisposed people to be more willing to give. In this case, there was a lame man there which is also common all over the world. Travel to any continent, most countries, you're going to find people with some kind of disability who are asking for help or money or resources or people who love them who are doing that in their place. And it's a lot harder to deny people who have needs who are right in front of you, of whom you can obviously see that they can't walk or they can't see or they can't hear or some other kind of disability. It's one thing when someone has a cardboard sign with a message on it. It's another when you see their need in front of you. Verse three, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. This kind of thing happens thousands of times in thousands of ways from thousands of people all over our world. Nothing new here in that respect, but verse 4 is new. Because of, instead of ignoring the man as some kind of nuisance, Peter and John look straight at him. In fact, they tell him to look straight at them, which already introduces a, a stunning nature to this encounter. See, this man is used to hundreds of people passing him by each day. Perhaps a few of them give money. And and hundreds of people are used to passing by people like this man each day. A few of them pay attention or give something, but not here. Peter and John look at him and command him to look at them. They don't avert their gaze. They don't think that this person is a nuisance. They don't hurry on by. They stop and they look at him. And in in doing so, they affirm his humanity and his dignity. They show him that he matters to them. This is compassion up close and personal. And unfortunately, this is all too rare. Earlier this year, I was in a line for food in a busy place. A gentleman came up to me from behind who was obviously of a different socioeconomic level. And I I caught him out of the corner of my eye. I was on my phone and he mumbled something aloud and I wasn't sure who he was talking to. To be honest, I was hoping he was talking to someone else. After a pause, he said something again. And at this point, I was fairly certain that he was talking to me asking something about a little help and something later today. I didn't understand all that he said. I didn't really want to talk to him. I was hungry and I was in a hurry. Have you been there? It was the function I was set on, not any kind of friendliness to those around me. Finally, I looked at him, 
Shame on me for my delay. Peter and John didn't do that. They didn't need to think it through. They turned and addressed this person with their posture, with their words, with their voice. They dignified this person as someone made in God's image, loved by him and worthy of dignity. And that kind of compassion bears witness to Jesus because Jesus consistently dignified people with his actions. Can that be said about you? If we want the gospel to to flow from our lives, then it's vital that we show the dignity of people. If we want opportunities, then it's important that we look at the cashier, that we address the waitress, that we care for the attendant, that there's a receptionist that we pay attention to, that the customer service rep who's on the phone, that the janitor who's working there gets our attention, that we give them dignity. Look at verse six there. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Back then we weren't there, but they didn't carry cash wherever they went. Sometimes they would have precious metals with them. Some uh, mentioned here, but only for planned purchases. But that didn't stop Peter and John because that's really not what this man needed. It was what he was used to needing. It was what he was asking for. This man was lame from birth after all. He didn't know any different. But just because he hadn't experienced something didn't mean he couldn't benefit. Because the game changer in his life, in his mind, would be the opportunity to walk. But he couldn't fathom it. Perhaps he couldn't imagine it. And yet that's the very thing that Peter and John offered. Let me ask you, is it possible that the greatest thing that people need is something they would never ask for and perhaps never imagine? Courage is offering not just what people want, but what they most deeply need. Courage is offering not just what people want, but what they most deeply need. Verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he, Peter, helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Of course they were. Who wouldn't be filled with wonder and amazement at a healing that was undeniable, that everyone saw the effects of. And this is something that happens multiple times in Acts. And it begs the question, at least in our day, whether we should expect to see this kind of thing in our witness to Jesus. And that's a challenging question. Based on certain scriptures and certain experiences, some people say no. They tend to be called cessationists. That means that miracles in their minds have ceased. Those people not only say that we shouldn't expect wonders, miracles, but that God will not do them. 
based upon certain scriptures and experiences, some people say, yes, we might call them continuationists. In other words, such miracles continue connected to our witness to Jesus. Such people say that not only can God do such miracles, but we should pray for them and expect them. Who's right? It's a challenging topic worthy of a lot more time than we have to give to it this morning. What I do know is that each one of us knows people who are sick, who have some kind of infirmity, and we long for them to be made well. We pray that God would intervene in their physical malady, and that's legitimate. As for how God works through his witnesses for the sake of the gospel, one author says it well, I think, summarizes where we should land. He writes, I do not think the Bible teaches us that God will never do miracles today. It's a bridge too far that God won't and can't. But I don't think we should expect the same outpouring of miracles that occurred among Jesus and his representatives. Those signs were just that. They were signs that showed the unique character of those who did them. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see these kind of things when the early church was launched. We see it in particular at certain stages when gospel witness crossed cultural boundaries and God did those kind of amazing things. Some people report even today that those things happen in certain contexts, and they may be right. What's important is not the healing itself. The important factor is the source or the, the source of the power and the content of the message. And on that, so many people get it wrong. The disciples got it right. Second point, the healing explanation, verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, of course he would. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Which is a rather surprising response. Instead of celebrating with them, instead of being equally astonished, Peter rebukes them. And instead of saying, wow, that was awesome. Good question. How did that happen? Peter says, why the shock? Why are you so impressed with us? Peter redirects attention from himself to the one to whom it belonged. The good news of the gospel includes us, but we're not the center of it. Jesus is. And the testimony and witness of our lives might be told from a personal perspective, but the core is Jesus. The awe is connected to Jesus, not to us. John Stott wrote on one occasion, the most remarkable feature of Peter's second sermon, Pentecost was first, this was second, is its Christ-centeredness. He directed the crowd's attention away from both the healed cripple and the apostles to the Christ. Is that true in your testimony? That people walk away saying, what a God? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Peter says, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. 
You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had not decided that though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Peter had clearly not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Here he was, he had a captive audience. They were impressed by him. He had them eating out of his hand. He could have said anything and engendered almost any kind of response. Now is the time for Peter to be seeker sensitive and user friendly. Come on, Peter. But instead he rebuked them, not once, not twice, three times. Not for inappropriate behavior or response, but for a capital murder. Just when he had them primed for invitation, he makes an accusation. Yes, this was right after many of them had been part of the Calvary crowd. Yes, certain groups, including sometimes some Jews, have a reputation for straight talk and animated argument. Maybe that was here. Yes, Peter was amped up by their response. It's perhaps true that this isn't a one-for-one model of how we engage in evangelism. I would have worded it a little different. Maybe you would have too. But there are larger principles in the description of Acts that are transferable, that people need to hear. Among them are these. Number one, people need to know their sin. One author says people need to see the depth of their sin so that they come to a fuller understanding of the depth of God's grace. Somehow or another, people need to know of their sin. And often the most effective way to say that is instead of you language to use we language. That includes me too. Number two, people need to accept historical truth. Peter says you have been witnesses of this Jesus and what has happened. And number three, good news is best when seen against the backdrop of bad news. See, to be clear on the gospel includes all of this. The gospel doesn't hide the bad news. One of my former professors, uh, formerly the uh, Youth for Christ director in Sri Lanka off the coast of India, wrote it like this. People usually come within the sound of the gospel in order to avail themselves of the power of God for personal needs. People come in touch with their needs and longings. But they stay because they know Christianity is the truth. And we see that here. The disciples show compassion for people in need and they show courage to speak what is true. Peter says that. But God raised him from the dead, verse 15, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Peter says loud and clear, Jesus is alive, and you all know this because you or those around you have seen him, and you have to deal with who he is. What some meant for evil, God is using for good. God gets the last word. Verse 16 is a wonderful verse about how the healing took place. It's central to this miracle of what Jesus calls the new birth, to be made new, alive. Faith in the name or the character of Jesus. 
But the challenge of this verse is an unanswered question, and that's whose faith? Who had faith in Jesus to enable this healing? And, and upon reading it, at first blush, we might think it was the man, the lame man. But that may not be the case because other than calling out, sitting there for practical help, he didn't say or initiate anything. In fact, it was Peter, the text says, who lifted him up. I think it's more accurate to say that the faith here is the faith of Peter. That Peter believed courageously in the name and power of Jesus. And through that impressive faith, this man was healed. Again, a passage like this raises a whole lot of questions about the applicability or the transferability into our time. Not, not just the question of miracles or healings, but also the question of acts of kindness, of deeds of compassion. What is their value? Are they central to the gospel message or are they distraction that takes us away? Both of those, I believe, are unhelpful extremes. For one thing, the way we live matters. People will often remember much more of how you acted than what you said. Our compassion for the needs of others demonstrates our love for them and also reflects the God who's with us. Those kind of deeds of compassion can cultivate the spiritual soil in people's hearts, preparing them for the gospel and resulting from those who embrace it. But whatever our lives may communicate, the gospel needs to be spoken. Mercy Ministries, Mark Dever says, commend the gospel, but they share it with no one. To be evangelism, the gospel must be communicated, clearly communicated. It is necessary to speak the gospel. Third, the invitation from the apostles. We have the event of the healing. We have the explanation of the healing. Now the call to response to those who have seen and heard. Having just performed an act of compassion in the power of Jesus, having shown faith in the name of Jesus, an act of courage, now Peter begins to connect the dots of the gospel. And not just what happened in the life of Jesus, of which they may have been familiar, but, but what took place in the fulfillment of God's overarching plan, stretching way back in time, and how they should respond now that they know all this. We'll talk of the response in a moment. Let's start with the fulfilled plan. Much of the rest of chapter 3, if you look there, describes how the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the capstone of what God has been doing all along. There's a grand drama that stretches back hundreds and thousands of years that has led up to the place of Jesus. Peter is seeking to show his predominantly Jewish audience that the gospel is not anti-Jewish. Many people then and now, especially Jews, have been led to believe that. The gospel of Jesus is ultimate Judaism. The Jewish Messiah has come to offer salvation to the world, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And Peter tells the story. Verse 17, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. 
But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. He, he begins to recount beginning in verse 21, all the ways in which Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone, the culmination of what God had planned. And it goes all the way back to the person of Abraham and before. In Genesis chapter 12, near the beginning of our Bibles, God called Abraham to obey him and said, you will be blessed and through you and your descendants, all the peoples, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, the Messiah, the Christ was predicted long ago and he has a name and a face and it's Jesus. The gospel comes through Jesus. The blessing was promised to the Jews so that it would go through the Jews to the nations. And the greatest Jew, Jesus, is the climax. This is the gospel, and Peter says it demands a response. Those who reject it will be permanently cut off. Those who embrace it will be brought in to the true people of God. So how do you respond? What should you do with this Jesus? Verse 19, Peter says, to the people, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah or the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, namely Jesus. How do you respond in light of this Jesus? Peter gives two commands, repent and convert. Those are literally the words here. Repentance, we've talked about this before, is a humble recognition that I'm going the wrong way, that I'm headed in my life into a cul-de-sac, that I'm headed off a cliff. And, and unless I turn around, danger awaits. Luke uses that word often. Peter uses the word. Paul uses the word here in the book of Acts. There is no rescue, no salvation without repentance and convert. That's literally what turn to God means. More specifically, Peter is saying, turn in trust to the one God has sent, namely Jesus. Jesus wasn't a correctly crucified criminal. No, Jesus is God's appointed Christ. And Peter says to them, you have so far misjudged him, misjudged him no longer. Peter speaks in verse 17 of the ignorance of the people and their leaders, not an ignorance that absolves them of responsibility. No, they're guilty for their conclusion till now. He's speaking of an ignorance of understanding. They should have perceived and seen better. They had opportunity, but they had no capacity. But now that Jesus is risen, open your eyes and see the evidence of God's plan. Repentance and conversion are expected and there's great reward for those who respond this way. Look at what Peter outlines as the gifts of salvation. First, forgiveness of sin to those who respond. Peter says your moral and spiritual slate will be wiped clean. God will do a control alt delete on all the garbage that typifies your life. He will make you new. Who doesn't in our day want forgiveness of sin? 
Second, times of refreshing will come. This is an interesting phrase that Peter uses and Luke records. Perhaps Peter is saying something to the effect of what John said when when he records Jesus talking about abundant life for those who know him, or what Paul says when he speaks of peace and joy in the life of a believer. Those who know Jesus will experience times, seasons of refreshment. Who doesn't want that in our world? Third, you can look forward to the return of the Messiah. The Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again, ascended to heaven. But that's not the end of the story because in the same way, he's coming back. And those who know him don't dread that return, but long for it. Peter says, repent and convert. And he'd say the same thing to us this morning. If you're here this morning, if you've not responded to this message about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, that's the same message to you this morning. There's no update in the last 2,000 years. Respond to Jesus. Turn from your way that's a dead end and trust in Jesus, who's God's gift to you. Your way will not work. He is the way. Have you trusted him? These early followers of Jesus were sensitive and and discerning in how they communicated the gospel. They understood the context. They arranged their words and presentation accordingly. But there were certain features as they spoke of Jesus that they always included, either explicitly or that they made sure was true of their hearers. To put it differently, they they made sure that there were certain dots in place so that when they connected the gospel, people would see its truth. It'd be valuable to highlight again what the core of the gospel message is. We've done this before at Grace, four things. God, man, Christ, response. First, God. God created every human being in his image, loves us, and makes each of us accountable to him. The Jews were inundated with that. They knew that. People in our day need to hear that, don't they? God made you. You matter to him, and you're accountable to him. Two, man, or humanity. All of us have rebelled against God, which is what the Bible calls sin. And each of us stands under God's rightful judgment. Again, the Jews would have been familiar with that. They saw the sacrificial system again and again that reminded them that there was guilt. There was a price to be paid. People in our day don't know that. People in our day need to understand, like we do, that we're sinners before God. And we stand under his condemnation because he's a holy God. Three, Christ. Jesus Christ is God's intervention in a fallen world. And through his perfect life, his death is our substitute, his resurrection in power, God offers us salvation. Back in Jesus' time, in the time of the early church, many people thought of Jesus as a renegade failed rabbi. And many people in our day think of Jesus as some kind of inspiring teacher, some kind of interesting prophet, some kind of strange man who came and went and is no longer. But all of them are wrong. Jesus, the Bible says, is the risen Christ, God in the flesh, and the one to whom we respond. Number four, response. God, man, Christ, 
response. Each person is called to respond to God's salvation offer through repentance and faith. That's what conversion is. Repent and believe. Repent and trust. Repent and faith. The result, forgiveness of sin, the gift of God's spirit, inclusion in God's people, the guarantee of eternal life. It's good news. But good news to have effect has to be accepted. And you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, are those witnesses. You and I are the people who are called not only to embrace, but to proclaim this good news. As Paul says, how will they hear unless someone proclaims it to them? That's how the lame man heard. That's how the crowd heard. That's how the people around your life and mine will hear if we open our mouths. Max Stiles said, if anything is needed in Christian witness today, it is boldness. We don't need bigger music ministries, longer prayer walks, or nicer church foyers, or fill in the blank. We need boldness to speak good news to a world that needs it. Fourth and finally, the interrogation of the apostles, the questioning of the apostles. There are a variety of responses in the text here. Many of the listeners, many in the crowd were convicted and persuaded. Many of the leaders were threatened and refused. And they did with the apostles what they did with Jesus. Arrested, took into custody, interrogated. You see, a healing event does not change a hard heart. Many people today think that If only people would experience the supernatural, if only their deepest longing would be met, if only their body would be healed, then they would believe. Oh, if it would be so. God can do that. But the story of history from the life of Jesus until our own is that until people see no amount of God's intervention in the circumstances of life will change a heart. A healing event does not change a hard heart. And that was true of the leaders. And so they took Peter and John into custody, just like Jesus. It was deja vu all over again. Acts chapter 4, verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame... And are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Wow. Courage drips from the lips of Peter and the apostles. They had nothing to lose because they had everything to gain in Jesus. And if you know him, the same is true. The spirit of Jesus entered the lives of his followers and radically changed them from the inside out. And they were therefore able to live and speak in ways 
that they themselves would have thought impossible. We don't have time to turn there. Back at the end of Luke, Jesus prophesies, predicts this. He said, there will be times in which you are brought before rulers and authorities and you won't know what to say. You'll be put in situations that overwhelm you. Don't worry about it. I will give you the words to say so that you will know how to respond to those who want explanation of your life. And the same is true today. I'm fascinated by chapter 4, verse 13, the response of the leaders to the courage of these followers. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. It was the only explanation. Wasn't their training it wasn't their eloquence. It wasn't their social status. It was their Lord. The fingerprints of Jesus were all over these followers and they couldn't help but bear witness to him. At the beginning of our time this morning, I spoke of four crucial elements, ingredients in effective gospel witness, clarity, compassion, connection, and courage, all of them vital. You might be sitting here this morning as a follower of Jesus and say, one of those feels like it comes naturally to me. Two of those, uh, not so sure. One of them, not at all. If Jesus calls us to be witnesses, wouldn't it make sense that if we prayed to God and asked him to make all four of those true in our lives, that's a prayer he longs to fulfill? I challenge you today, this morning, this week, to ask God in the simplicity of your own heart, God, would you make those true of me? That I could be clear on the gospel, that I could speak with courage, that I would have compassion for people and I would have connections to those who don't know you. Even better is the news that we are not called to this alone. Though we may bear witness on an individual level in specific circumstances, you're not alone. Around you are three or five or 20 or 60 or 400 people who share that same faith and who together with you bear witness to Jesus. And when we can do that together in settings where they can see not just you, but others like you, it's so much more difficult for them to write you off as an exception because they see what God does in all of you. The key, of course, is that the spirit of God lives in us. And he lives in every person who has repented and believed and walks with Jesus. And he doesn't live in anyone who's not done so. And those who do, they will be able to say like Peter and John said, as for us, Acts 4.20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Can you say the same thing? Here's what we take from this passage. God shows his power so that you might receive his blessing and those who receive it, share it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus the Christ to us. We thank you that you meet our deepest need and then you involve us in your mission. We thank you that we're not only part of the family with belonging and new life, but we're part of the calling to be witnesses to you.
Thank you for placing us in such a time as this. Thank you for placing us in this setting. Thank you for the people that you've put around us that matter to you and need you. God, I pray that you would make us the kind of people who the, through the winsomeness and courage of our lives would share good news in a world that desperately needs it. Help us to have the same kind of response provoked by your spirit that these first followers did. In Jesus' name, amen.